Hello and welcome everyone to our KPMG in Canada's ESG podcast series. My name is Doron Tellem and I'm the national ESG leader here in KPMG in Canada. Today I'm sitting down with my colleagues Sylvia Gonzalez-Zamora, partner, management consulting, people and change, and Stefan Kramer, senior manager, ESG and sustainability, to discuss why the social component of ESG is critical to an organization's success, the direct and indirect impacts of human rights legislations across the enterprise, and what leaders should be considering as they evaluate the future of their business models. Sylvia, Stefan, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Dorn. Happy to be here. Thank you. Great. Well, why don't I kick it off? So... Firstly, Stefan, maybe just tell us a little bit about what is modern slavery? Modern slavery encompasses forced and child labor and human trafficking, essentially where people are coerced into working against their will through the threat of violence or actual violence, the need to try and pay off inescapable personal debt, or through restrictions on movement, such as having their passport taken away. Right now, there are an estimated 40 million people trapped in modern slavery, one quarter of whom are children and three quarters of whom are women and girls. And we may think that this is far away, but it's actually happening in Canada. We recently saw in the news how our municipalities now have specific programs to support victims of human trafficking with uh, maybe some transitional housing, some mental health support. So we definitely see this as a rise and we should all be aware of it. And clearly companies should be paying attention to this. It's impacting their extended supply chains. Stefan, maybe just clue us in on what should companies be looking at more specifically? Well, first off, why should companies be paying attention to this? Just because it's the right thing to do. You want to ensure your business, your suppliers, and the companies you may invest in, if you're an investor, are, are not being tied or have any kind of relationship to modern slavery. Secondly, there's legislation that is popping up around the world. So the UK, France, Germany, and likely soon the, the full EU will have legislation in place covering supply chain due diligence. And Canada itself actually is looking at passing a bill that would require publicly listed companies over a certain size to report on how they are preventing and reducing the risk of forced or child labor in their supply chains. So if this legislation is passed, it will align Canada with the other legislation that I mentioned. So secondly, in terms of reputation, human rights issues have risen in the awareness of consumers. We've seen this related to certain tragedies that have happened in garment factories with the factories actually burning down and people dying. We've seen issues arise such as forced labor in the fishing industry in Southeast Asia, forced labor in certain regions of China and child labor in the cocoa supply chain in West Africa, for example. And then finally, a third reason for companies to pay attention to this is investors. So ESG ratings firms are increasingly assessing companies on their human rights policies and practices with a strong focus on the supply chain. And there's been a significant increase in shareholder resolutions related to human rights. Thanks, Stefan. So clearly, regulatory pressure, reputational risk, and frankly, as you said, 
doing the right thing is critical these days more than ever. Sylvia, I know that you work with the C-suites and the boards to actually bring this to the practical level. So maybe you can share with us how you advise and what you advise them to do uh, on the ground in this respect. Absolutely, Doran. We see all the boards and C-suites are paying attention to ESG now, not just in the reporting, but actually adding that risk-based approach, understanding from their perspective of metrics, what is going to happen with my business activities? Is there a risk with factors like the jurisdictions that I'm working with, the workplace that I have, the workforce that I'm adding even through my partnerships, my contractors, my suppliers? And of course, looking at it from the human rights lens, protecting the human rights from every single angle that we can, consumers, employees, citizens, patients, looking at it from the business model of every organization, of course, and the industry perspective. There's several associations that are starting to look at it as a group as well that is helping and supporting a holistic approach. We also have points of view from governments now, as Stefan was saying, adding to that human rights element, the corporate citizenship, but also the accountability side in terms of how do we as organizations see the future that we are investing in from the impact in climate, of course, but also the impact in the social networks that we have. So definitely there's several mechanisms to safeguard to look at the grievances mechanisms, to have whistleblowing or ethics lines, and to also add some actions that could determine from maybe your initial ESG trainings all the way up to where's your accountability in the metrics of your leaders. Okay, and Sylvia, when you work with the C-suites and the boards and you start to look at their activities, have they found things that they were not aware of as you start digging in? That's a great point, Doran. Every single time we see that the C-suite and the board are the beginning of that awareness. They are at the top of that iceberg. But as they move on to training, as they ask the right questions, as they move their strategy into the future, they do see that maybe there's elements of their leadership or middle management that were incorporating certain decisions that may not have the positive impact that they wanted or intended with their direction. Um, similarly, organizations that were very focused on productivity then see how burnout and well wellness reactions are popping below in that iceberg. When organizations were only focused on metrics around uh, maybe the reputation of their products or maybe the social recognition of consumers, and they didn't take a look at what were they doing internally to their employees. So we really have to be very transparent and very consistent in the approach that we take as organizations to take care of all of the human elements we have internally and externally. So clearly there's work to be done in digging under the iceberg or the top of it. Stefan. So just to add on to that, I can share from personal experience. I've done a lot of work in the mining industry and one of the jobs I had was going to sites and, and conducting or being part of conducting human rights assessments. And so I saw firsthand when we went and actually spoke to some of the female employees at one of the sites uh, we came across allegations of sexual harassment and even sexual assault that had not been registered in any way prior to that. And so that was a shock. It was a shock within the organization. Nobody expected to see that. Nobody thought that was happening and it was happening regularly. So without that assessment, that never would have happened. And it just brings 
to mind how important it is to put in place the mechanisms that people actually trust, that your workers trust for them to provide feedback and to lodge complaints if something serious arises. Well, thank you both. Clearly a very serious topic. I'm going to pivot a bit to another very topical area which people are calling the Great Resignation. And I know there's some debate in Canada whether we're seeing the same trend as the U.S., but I believe that when you look at the statistics, at least in the U.S., we are clearly seeing more people resigning, potentially for quality of life, work-life balance, other reasons. I'm actually going to ask Sylvia about that. And are we seeing, uh, is it a resurgence in workers' rights? Is it something else? What can you tell us about that, Sylvia? I would say, yes, there is a social conscious now that is more active. We do see workers now being more vocal about their rights as, as they were in previous generations, but now they're not afraid to talk about their mental health. They're not afraid to talk about those blurred lines between working from home and working at the office and all of the different elements that the pandemic heightened as a part of our day-to-day -day lives. So we definitely see that health is uh, quite a priority, not just safety as we had before. Um, we are seeing, for example, the right to understand each other more in that gig economy. Maybe that flexibility needs to look different for uh, people that have caring responsibilities, maybe elders, maybe multi-generational homes, maybe childcare. And maybe the people that are young also need that sense of community and they want to be part of something bigger than just working on their very small condos in urban areas. So we truly see that there's that sense of community and taking care of each other that is necessary. And as we build these uh, equity lenses, we start to see in the iceberg the inequalities. Um, we didn't have maybe before that sense of social disparity families with lower income, they don't have the same access to technology. They don't have the same access in some places uh, for healthcare, for example, even if it's parting in Canada as uh, province-wide, just location or geography sometimes uh, discriminates in a way that people can access certain services. So we do see that we now have to consider how uh, young people, elders, how our workforce in general in, in their best years are also in need of very specific things that now they're calling out as their workers' rights. We do see the worker well-being right. We do see remote workers' rights. And several organizations are starting to put this into writing understanding what do we need to protect to have a more flexible and inclusive workplace. And Stefan, I think you've also done some work and are seeing how this is coming through investors from their lens and what they're pushing. Absolutely. There has been a significant increase in investor activism called stewardship on ESG topics, resulting in an increase in shareholder resolutions and in particular, just related to social topics such as human rights, uh, labor rights, remuneration, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and health and safety. So, for example, just in 2021 and 2022, the PRI tracks shareholder resolutions and they've recorded 240 resolutions that were filed and uh, most were voted upon in the last couple of years just on those social topics. So, some of these resolutions maybe related to issues like equity, diversity, inclusion, where companies are expected to conduct a 
a survey or a review of how they're managing that internally. Or, for example, even something like a living wage, which is above and beyond the minimum wage, recognizing based on inflation and a basket of goods, what it actually costs for people to live and, and asking some of these organizations that have a lot of lower paid workers to actually consider implementing a living wage. So some fairly ambitious resolutions that we're seeing come through. And PRI being, of course, principles for responsible investing that you referred to earlier. So when you think about where there might be some blind spots for companies, what might those be? We explored that earlier, Sylvia, in terms of that iceberg and what's under it and what happens when you start to dig in. So Sylvia, what are those blind spots? Thank you so much. Well, definitely the blind spots or emerging trends are different for every organization. We've seen that many are still in that um, virtuous or negative circle around hybrid and flexible. So many organizations are still questioning, can I bring my workers back to the office? What would that look like? What changes do I need to do in order to support that? Or can I adapt to a business model that will help me to be more remote and flexible? And there's definitely that right to disconnect that we see now is taking place in terms of even the virtual environment, not having those virtual barriers between your home and your work-life balance. So definitely, as we turn around the corner of hybrid, we're going to find new things. Um, some of them are going to be the right to disconnect, yes, but also the right for flexibility. We went from sick days to mental health days. Maybe the recognition of neurodiversity is going to be there. So some of us learn differently. We do not have maybe the same uh, eyesight or maybe the same audition function. So we truly have to embed different types of learning now if we want everyone to learn on their own and we're democratizing learning. So every part of changing our business model will have to adapt the talent processes that have to go with it. What are we measuring that may be enticing or influencing people's decision for them maybe to feel forced to add themselves more hours into the day to send that email at 11 o'clock at night? Or what are we supposedly doing as leaders to help our team really feel that they can disconnect and be part of their families and, and enjoy a time without having to take a look at the email? Uh, or are we role modeling, sending and revamping conversations very quickly so that they feel they have to be on top of everything. Um, definitely there's a lot to do, but every day we're discovering that flexibility, inclusion, and understanding of the needs of uh, the different communities that we work with and for will help us to drive that next step. And Stefan, what about you? What, what are you seeing in terms of those potential blind spots? Well, I think one of them that we've seen a huge pickup on in the past few years is the unionization drives, particularly in the United States at, at some fairly major corporations. So I think this is related to the fact that young people today in the States may be the first generation in U.S. history to actually end up worse off economically than their parents. And that's driving an actual generational change in attitudes towards unions, with a recent study finding that 74% of Americans between 18 and 24, saying that they would vote to join a union if they could. So this is an emerging topic. So Sylvia, I want to ask you the final question. You talked a lot about what we need to be thinking about for workers and, and the ways of working these days. 
what should we be thinking about as we struggle? I do, like many others in organizations, to attract and retain the best talent. We see many trends in what we call Talent 4.0 dedicated to now the social side of our talent. Uh, there's even now human rights that are green human rights. So we are thinking about new types of management for our workers and new types of understanding where do we need to focus. There's absolutely a need to retain talent, but also to retain them in a way that they don't burn out later on. Uh, so it's not just about compensation and keeping them in the same talent processes that they were before. We may need to build now metrics by uh, the different functions. And right now we have performance management processes that are very holistic, one size fits all. Uh, maybe in the future we start seeing that the talent process for succession planning is more targeted so that we actually build the equity that we need in the equity-deserving groups that haven't been represented for a long time, blank professionals, indigenous professionals, um, seeing that the newcomers in Canada will change the makeup as well as we grow immigration again. We will need to understand what are we going to do to recognize international education, maybe as part of the learning and development processes that we have internally, recertify people based on their knowledge that we need for them for tomorrow. So all of these talent processes will need to evolve as we move through the great retention. Hopefully there's a reshuffling that also takes care of our, our workers, our communities, and we see that there's a, a brighter future. Well, Stefan and Sylvia, this, this was very enlightening to me and hopefully for our audience. If I have two takeaways, I would say... One, we are truly global citizens now. We need to consider our global environment, our global supply chain, and the impact that we are having on people all across the globe. It's going to be in regulation, but as you both articulated, it's the right thing to do and to consider for any organization. My second takeaway would be that our engagement with our people is so fundamentally changed. I'm so humbled every day by the different things that myself and other leaders need to consider in our form of communication and engagement with our people and the skills that we actually need to obtain and almost retrain ourselves to take sometimes a more multifaceted approach to how we, again, manage, attract, retain, and just give people a different experience than ever before. So. Thank you both. Really appreciate your time and your insights today. Thank you, Duran. Thank you so much.